0: Good morning, I'm Roger. We're going to read scripture this morning from John 14:16 to 26. I invite you to follow along in your program or in your Bible. This is God's word. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the word cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the world that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And these things I have spoken to you While I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you uh, today. And again, as, as Sheila, welcome. Thanks for coming out on a, on a dreary morning. I know it's one of those mornings uh, where, where it's easy to stay in bed, and so it's glad to see you. I don't know how it's worked in your family, uh, but with the time change last week, my boys didn't get the memo, and so they've just been up an hour early every day. So I'm even more tired than I was before, but that's just uh, that's just life. My name's Jonathan Mosher, um, and it's my privilege to open the word for you this morning. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles if you would to John chapter 14. Have you ever had an experience uh, in the course of your life where there was something that you always had assumed to be true and it turned out not to be? And maybe you discovered that in an embarrassing fashion through a conversation through somebody else, or maybe you just discovered something new that you'd never known to be true before. For me, there was two particular instances that I can think of. So for instance, I remember Very specifically in probably second or third grade, I don't remember which grade it was, but I remember that Miss Nasset was my teacher, so that's how I kind of earmarked those things. And so I remember sitting in science class and we were learning about the planets. And I remember when we finally got to the end of the week and we had taken a test uh, about the planets, one of the questions on the test was how many planets are there? And so I wrote there were eight planets. And that question, friends, was marked wrong. Now that's interesting if you've been following the news because uh, for most of us, we grew up with an understanding that there were nine planets, and then in 2006, some scientists got together and decided that Pluto was no longer a planet, that it was gonna be considered a dwarf planet or a micro planet, and so we weren't gonna count it. And so ever since, and that's burned in my mind, I'd like to go back and tell Ms. NASA, you know what, can you give me those points? (laughs) this kind of began the breeding of mistrust towards elementary teachers in my life. It's funny, because if you look now, in fact, I googled yesterday, if you start googling, is Pluto, Google tries to guess the end of your question, and the the question that it tries to come up with is, is Pluto a planet, yes or no? And I love the idea that there are people sitting in their home googling that question, just tell me what it is, yes or no, is it a planet or is it not? But that was something where, as science changed and developed, as we discovered new and different things, our understanding changed. And likewise, also as a kid, probably right around the same time, I remember very specifically being uh, in, in our kitchen growing up, and my mom had a bottle of maraschino cherries. And I remember I was asking for maraschino cherries on the ice cream or whatever it was that I was eating, and I mentioned something about how good these cherries were and why are they so much better than normal cherries. And my mom's response was, well, they're not real cherries, they're like candied cherries. That was kind of her answer. Well, I took her literally. These are not real cherries. These are just candy. And so I remember uh, after about a year of Jessica and I being married, I remember her making a comment one time about maraschino cherries. And I said, well, you know those aren't real cherries. And she looked at me like I was, like I was nuts. And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, they're, they're just candy. They're not real cherries. And she goes, no, they're not. They're actually real cherries. And I was like, no, that can't be true. My mom told me. It's one of those things, right? But for the bulk of my life, I believe that maraschino cherries weren't really cherries. That's, that's embarrassing for me to admit to you, but, but I say all that to say this. There may be a difference between the things that you know and what you know that you know. If you understand the distinction that I'm drawing, there are those things that we assume, those things that we've kind of taken in by osmosis over the years, things that we've heard, things that we've learned, things that we've read, and we've just assumed those things to be true. And maybe without ever really spending any time studying or digging into the truth of the matter, we have just continued on believing what we've always believed. And so over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is just take a little bit of time together as a church to do an introductory study on the Holy Spirit. Now this isn't going to be comprehensive because we don't have time in the course of 3 weeks for this to be a comprehensive study, but what I want to do each each week that we're together is I want to look at a text of scripture and just within that text look at what it teaches us about the Holy Spirit. So this morning, that text is John chapter 14. I'm going to jump around all over in different texts this morning to reference different things um, that are connected to this passage, but I just want to draw out the particular truths of this text this morning. And the reason that I think it's appropriate for us as believers to spend time digging into these things is because there is a great deal of ignorance surrounding the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you grew up in and around the church, you probably have an idea in your mind of who the Holy Spirit is and what His work is and all of those sorts of things, but maybe you've never actually taken the time to study those things out. And so like me, you're just assuming what's true. And our tendency as a church, not necessarily this church locally here, but our tendency as churches, broadly speaking, is to approach the Holy Spirit either purely intellectually or purely experientially. And so some churches, by nature, are kind of word-driven churches. And what I mean by that is they're, they tend to be more intellectual and academic with how they approach the word. They're very focused on doctrine. They're very focused on truth. Truth. They're, they're, they're focused on um, explaining Scripture as it stands. But maybe they're, maybe they're kind of scared of the idea of experience. And so they kind of want to run the opposite way from that. And likewise, there are churches who have abandoned doctrine and truth wholeheartedly and instead tried to pursue the Holy Spirit experientially, just wanting some sort of emotional experience, a feeling, something to kind of grab onto experientially. And it leads to all kinds of craziness. But these two approaches have a tendency to polarize one another. But a faithful understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit will allow us or will, rather will not allow us to intellectualize him to the point where we can manage him nor will it push us to an emotional fervor in pursuing him solely for what he gives and so today to serve as an introduction to the person and the work of the holy spirit we're looking at this text john chapter 14 now leading up to the verses that roger read for us this morning Jesus is explaining to the disciples uh, his pending death. He knows that the end is near. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that the the soldiers are going to come and that he's going to he's going to eventually uh, be murdered. He understands that this is going to happen, and so he's having a conversation with the disciples where he says, "Look, I want you to understand that I'm going to leave, but it's a good thing that I'm leaving because I'm going to go be with the Father." And understandably, the disciples are shaken by this whole idea. What do you mean you're leaving? You're the Messiah. You're the one who's supposed to establish the kingdom of God on earth. We're expecting you to do all of these things. You can't leave us. And Philip goes so far, even as a step of of maybe misplaced faith in his life, he goes so far as to say to Jesus earlier in this chapter, he says, "Um, Jesus, would you just show us the Father? Would you just give us a picture of the Father? Would you reveal Him to us in kind of this mountaintop experience way that Moses had experienced? Would you just give us a revelation, an understanding of the Father? Because then we'll be okay. Then we might understand these difficult words. Then we'll be able to have faith. And Jesus responds by saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father and I are one. And Jesus in this moment is claiming his own divinity. He's revealing his nature to them as God. And he goes on to tell them, look, understand, I'm not going to leave you alone. And this leads to the words of John chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, where he says this. He says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus says, understand when I leave, I'm not leaving you alone to fend for yourselves. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not telling you that you've got to figure it out. But understand this. It's a good thing that I go. And this parallels what he says in John chapter 16. He says, it's a very good thing that I'm leaving because when I go, I'm going to ask the Father to send you one who's just like me. And that word another, as it's translated in our text this morning, I'll give you another helper. There's two Greek words that can be translated as another. One is the word heteros, it's where we get our word hetero, as in heterosexual or various other applications of that word. It means another of a different kind, one who's opposed, one who's different. And then there's this Greek word alos, which means another of the same kind. And that's the word Jesus is using here. He says, I'm going to send someone who is just like me. And that creates all sorts of questions in our mind about the person and the, and the nature and the character of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus says, I'm going to send another one who's just like you. So how is the Spirit like Jesus? And at the very least, it means two things. One, it means that the Holy Spirit is a person. And by a person, I don't mean a physical body, but I mean the Holy Spirit is not just a force. Our tendency as people, maybe by by virtue of the fact that we put the word the in front of the Holy Spirit, is to kind of depersonalize His nature. We have a tendency to turn Him into a force, an energy, to act as if He is somehow an impersonal God. God. But in verse 17, Jesus goes so far as to reference the Holy Spirit as Him. And we understand all throughout Scripture that the Holy Spirit is a personal. God, And we'll talk a little bit more about this relationship between the three in a moment. But we understand that he's personal because all throughout Scripture, we see the hand of the Holy Spirit. We hear uh, about the nature and the character of the Holy Spirit. We hear about his interaction with people. We understand from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We understand if you look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we understand that the Holy Spirit can be lied to. We understand if you read Romans chapter 15 that the Holy Spirit loves. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not merely the energy of God or the force of God or even the hand of God, but the Holy Spirit is in fact a person. And that leads to the second point, which is that the Holy Spirit also is God. Because in the very same way, you could read throughout scripture and you can read the descriptions of the Holy Spirit and the exact same words that we use to define the character and the nature of God are used specifically and exclusively with the person of the Holy Spirit. So we're told that he's omniscient, that he knows all things. We're told that he's omnipresent, that he's literally everywhere. We're told that he is omnipotent, that there is nothing beyond his influence or his power, that he has power over everything. In the book of Genesis, you see the Holy Spirit moving over the face of the world as he brings it into creation. You see the interaction and the conversation as God, three persons in one, has this conversation where he says, let us create man in our image. both personal and God, and I realize, by the way, that if, you're not, if you've not grown up in and around church, if this is a new concept to you, it's one that's confusing, and let me just invite you to say that's okay. This is a big, big topic, and it's okay to wrestle through these things and question your way through these things and try to figure it out together, and we'll try to do a little bit of that, bit of that over the next few weeks, but understand again what's happening in this broader context of John chapter 14. Jesus has claimed his own divinity. He said, I am God, I and the Father are one. And he says in the same way that I am God, so is the Holy Spirit that the Father will send. He's just like me. And look at the response of the disciples that are gathered in verse 22. We're told that Judas, and it specifies, this is not Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Judas, but another Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, if if you leave, how is the world going to know who you are? If you leave, how are they going to know about the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love and the power of Christ? Jesus answered him in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And notice what it says next. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So think about this. Jesus says, I'm going to go be with the Father, but he will send another who is just like me. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and when he indwells you, it is like the Father and I are with you. See, this is the difficult doctrine of the Trinity. My phone is always listening and always responding. (laughs) apologize. Apologize. So think about this, Jesus says, I'm I'm, going to go, but he's going to send another one. And what we understand from this text is is that God does not just appear in three different modes. In other words, this isn't God taking on different shapes, different forms in the way that he interacts with man, where one day he's the father and the next day he comes as the spirit and the next day he comes as the son. And this is one God in just three different forms. He's not in three different modes. He's far more clearly delineated than that. You see the interchange and the interaction between these persons of God. And yet these are not three different gods. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God. And, and the reason we understand that is that these three persons are far too connected to be three different gods. In other words, we believe in one God in three persons. Now think about all of this in context. The disciples wanted to see the Father. They said, Jesus, we see you, but if only we could see the Father... Then we would have in a truer faith, a deeper faith, we would know you better and think about the way that we interact with God in the very same way. We understand that we have the Holy Spirit, but Jesus, if you could just reveal yourself to me, if I could just see you, if I could just have a conversation with you where I could see you physically, where I could put my fingers in the print of your hands, where I could know it was you, then I would have a deeper faith. Imagine how on fire my heart would be if I could have that personal interaction with you. And Philip in this text is proof that that is not the case because he had Jesus in the flesh and yet he's asking to see the Father. And likewise, we have the Spirit, but we say, just show me Jesus. And in verses 21 through 23, what Jesus is saying is you'll know me and you'll know the Father through the Holy Spirit. Now, I say all of this to say this. The Trinity is a different sermon, but this is a beautiful concept because if you walk away with nothing else, I want you to understand this this morning. The Holy Spirit is the personal being through whom you know Jesus and the Father. The Holy Spirit is a personal being who indwells the Christian, who is always with you, always empowering you, always enabling you. He's the one who enables prayer. He's the one that reveals sin. He's the one that corrects us when we go astray. He's the one that encourages us when we struggle. He's the one who builds us up. The presence of the living God in your life. Think about that. Where God in his power and in his love and his grace says, I'm going to see to it that you know how much I love you. And the way that I'm going to show you that is I'm going to give you myself to indwell you. Where you will never be alone. It's what enables Jesus to say in Matthew chapter 28, when he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and teach and baptize. He says, and understand this, I am with you always. How is he with us? Through the Spirit. So the spirit is a person and he is God. And next, notice what the spirit does. Here's the first description, verse 16. The father will send another helper. Now that word is interesting because depending on your translation of the Bible, you may have one of about three or four different words there. Some translations translate this word as helper. Some say it as comforter. Your Bible likely says something like that. It might say counselor. It might say advocate. And there's one of these rules of interpretation where anytime we come across a text of scripture where one word is translated in multiple different ways, it's probably an indication that that original word is really hard to translate. Where either the concept is so big or so obscure that the translators are trying to figure out a way to communicate its meaning in a way that a reader can understand. The Greek word that's used here is the word paraclete. And what it means is, it means someone who comes alongside, not someone who runs out ahead, not someone who lags behind, but someone who walks right alongside. That's the word para, with. And also the word cleat, which means to call, or literally, to argue. That the Spirit is one who comes alongside to call. We'll talk about the implications of that as we go along, but understand, this is the idea of a legal representative that the Holy Spirit is with us and that he's for us, that everything he does is to communicate to us the person and the nature of Christ, to convince us of our own identity in Christ, to empower us for the work of the ministry, that he comforts and he helps and he advocates for us. And if you want to dive deeply into this on your own time, read John chapters 14, 15, and 16 together because Jesus in this text gives an amazing excursus of this idea. But here's what he says in John 16, verse 14. Jesus says, He, that is the Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So first he is a helper, but second, here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the second ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he makes Jesus present with and precious to us. That he makes Jesus present with and precious to us. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals the person of Christ to us. Because as Roger read for us, he is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Sounds like a riddle but what he's saying is the spirit that I'm going to send to you is a spirit that the world cannot receive because they don't see him and they don't know him. In other words, you don't go looking for the spirit. But this is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's the explanation of that obscure verse. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is, judged, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Look at this last phrase. But we have the mind of Christ. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that the natural person, in and of themselves, has no ability to pursue or to know Jesus Christ. It's folly to them. And many, many of you in this room can give testament to that, where before knowing Christ, before having the intervening work of the Holy Spirit grab hold of your heart and life, you remember looking at Christianity, at faith, maybe even at the exi- idea of the existence of God, and just scoffing. How foolish that people would devote their lives to this idea! How foolish. That they would pursue these things and live their lives according to this ancient book. In other words, what he's saying in this text is apart from the divine intervention of the Holy Spirit, you cannot know God. So, the natural man, one who doesn't know Jesus, who does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit, they can study the Bible, they can glean knowledge from the Bible, they can even alter their behavior and yet remain spiritually dead. But when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells, that person is given, literally in this text, the mind of Christ. Now, how is that possible? Is your mind transformed instantaneously where you're a different person? Clearly not. But you're given the Holy Spirit. The transforming agent the power of God to change and shift your thinking. See, this is the idea that that makes the spiritual disciplines for the Christians so much different than the mere religious observances of other false faiths. In other words, if you want to know why reading scripture for the Christian or praying or sitting in silence or gathering and singing songs together and worshiping God, if you want to understand what makes those things so different for the Christian than the religious observances of any other faith in the world, the difference is for the Christian spiritual disciplines are the means of interaction with the holy creator God. That the Holy Spirit is the difference between knowing facts about God and delighting in a relationship with him. That the Holy Spirit is the difference between the Pharisees cold, repetitious prayers to a distant and unknown God and the heartfelt conversation of Paul in Ephesians chapter one. That the Holy Spirit is the difference between the empty minded meditation of Eastern religions and the silent, calm rest of the soul that David talks about in Psalm 62. That he is the difference between the stale reading of an ancient book and the vibrant, soul-piercing, honey-filled words that the psalmist delights in. See, the work of the Holy Spirit reminds us that we do not have an information problem, but we have a revelation problem. and that, that is the second aspect of his ministry that we find here his work a revelation so how does he do that notice notice this in verse 17 it says that he is the spirit of truth uh, it doesn't just mean that he's a spirit that speaks truth into your life, although certainly he does those things. But ultimately, how are we to distinguish in our own minds and hearts what comes from our own desires or our own intellect or our own will and the work of the Holy Spirit while well, we always compare it against the word. And here's what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says about this. It says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now some of you right there, that's going to be the stumbling block. Well, wait a minute. People wrote this book and if people wrote the book, then how, how can we trust in the veracity of this book? And the answer comes in the same verse, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, it is the Holy Spirit alone who can take the words of Scripture and bring them to bear in the life of the reader. And the reason that he can do that is because he is the author of those words. Since he is the author of truth, and because we have his word, it means that the Spirit is never going to lead us into something that is counter to what he says in Scripture. So think about the implications of that for your life. Because over the last 10 to 12 years, I've sat, with, I've sat with men and women who as confidently as they could possibly say it came to me and said, I believe that, that God wants me to divorce my husband or my wife. With no biblical grounds of divorce, by the way. But just said, I'm not happy in my relationship, and so I'm out. And I think God wants me to be happy. and my answer is always okay can you can you just show me where can you show me where you get that from the word because i can show you all kinds of texts that talk about the idea that ultimately your marriage isn't even about you that your marriage is about bringing glory to god that your marriage is about sanctifying your own life that your marriage is about pouring yourself out for somebody else that your happiness is not even secondary in the equation and it's not to minimize the difficulties in the the struggles that people have in their marriages, nor is it to condemn those who found themselves in the place of being divorced because of those particular exemptions that scripture gives. But what it's to say is, if what you believe the Holy Spirit has led you to do is counter to something you find in his word, you need to be suspect and questioning about whether or not you've actually heard from him. Because he's not going to lead you into something that he has already called out in scripture. So what happens then when the spirit of truth reveals Christ and applies his word to your heart? We find the answer in verse 19. Jesus says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live So here we find the third work of the Holy Spirit. The third work of the Holy Spirit that we find in this text is that He brings about our regeneration. And that word regeneration literally means an instilling of new life. That He brings from the dead what was once dead and brings it into new life. So if you remember back to our study on Ephesians, here's what we read in chapter 2, verse 2 of that book. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So if you're a Christian, regardless of your background and regardless of whether or not you were in service from before you can even remember or whether you, got, whether you became a Christian last week, understand that this is your story. That you were once dead in trespasses and in sins. That you were not pursuing him and you were not chasing him down that you were not worthy of love and you were not worthy of affection, that your heart was at enmity, literally at war against God, where you were declaring either explicitly or implicitly through your life that you had no need and no affection and no love and no care for the person of God, that you were declaring that by virtue of who you were, you were sitting on the throne of your life. And what the Bible is going to say about that is you were dead in that moment spiritually inert, unable to respond, unable to be provoked into response. And that the reason you are a Christian, if you are a believer here today, is not because you were so gifted that God couldn't do without you. And it's not because you turned your lives around to the point where God said, you know what, I really believe that their intentions are good, so I'm going to save them now. That the reason you stand as a beloved child of God is because God is rich in mercy. That by grace, in other words, you've been given something that you did not deserve through faith, that you have placed your dependency on something outside of yourself to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That by grace, through faith, we were resurrected, brought from the dead, from death to life. And notice too what Paul says. He's not even going to leave it there as if that wasn't enough. He's going to say that God made us alive together. And here's the reason that's beautiful. Look at verse 18 of John chapter 14. I realize we're all over the place in text. You guys are doing a good job. Here's the reason that language of making us alive together is so beautiful. Look what he says in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So it's not just that you've been brought from death to life, and now you're in a place where you're trying to figure this out all all on your own. And what you read in verse 18 when Jesus talks with this idea of not leaving you as orphans, it's reminiscent of what Paul is going to say later in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15, where he says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Understand what we talked about earlier, that idea of the Holy Spirit being a helper, an advocate, a paraclete, one who walks alongside and calls out or even argues. This is the legal work of the Holy Spirit, if you will. This is the work of the advocate that he does in our life. He says, look, there are going to come times in your Christian walk where you begin to wonder, does God really love me? Am I really part of his family? of sin for the 10th or the 100th or the 1,000th time, isn't he tired of hearing my confession? Could it be that his love has drifted? See, by nature, we are a people who do not respond well to grace. Grace is a hard concept for us. We understand the concepts of religion very easily. The idea that I have to do something in order to get something, that's second nature for us. It's it's the world in which we live. It's the way that relationships play out. It's the way that businesses play out far too often. It's even the way that families play out. So the idea that I would do something for God in order to get something from God, that makes all kinds of sense to me. But the idea that left to my own devices, there is nothing I can do to gain his affection, to gain his love, to receive his forgiveness. That there is nothing I can do to make myself presentable or acceptable to God. That is terrifying. And likewise, it's almost inconceivable that God of his own volition, of his own mercy, of his own grace would so care for me and love me that he says, I'm going to forgive your sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to adopt you into my family. That is hard for us. Because we're always looking for the catch. And it never comes. And what we're told in this text is that you've received the spirit of adoption, Christian by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And much has been made about this word Abba. I don't think we need to make too much about it this morning. But the word Abba is a term of, a term of childlike endearment. It'd be like my son coming up and saying, Daddy. And immediately I'm on one knee just listening to him. It's a term of parental affection. But that is the intimacy into which you are invited with the Father through the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, it says, He bears witness that He testifies on our behalf of what? That we belong to God. So, who's He bearing witness to? Who's He arguing with? Who's He testifying to? You. That His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears testament with your spirit of your condition with Christ. Of your identity in Him, of your, of your new family. That we are in fact God's children. That we've been brought into this new family. And not only are we adopted, loved, sons and daughters, but we are also heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, meaning everything that Jesus deserves by virtue of the fact that he is the son of God, now belongs to us as sons and daughters of God. Think about that. The glory and the love and the intimacy and the relationship eternally that belongs to Christ has been extended to us. And so just in these few verses just get a snapshot of who the Holy Spirit is. Volumes of books have been and will continue to be written surrounding the Holy Spirit. But here in this text, we see his role in helping or advocating. We see his role in revelation in regeneration in adoption. And there are certainly other things as well verses 20 through 24, talk about the beginning of that transformed life. And we'll talk about that two weeks from now. But here's what I want you to walk away thinking about. Understand that when you neglect the fact that the Spirit's primary personal role in interacting with humanity is to reveal Jesus to them, you will either neglect Him living as if He does not exist or that He's just some amorphous force in your life or you'll end up being so enamored with his power and with what he can do that you will begin chasing experience. Where you'll begin to believe that the Holy Spirit exists to bring experiential flourishes into your life and in doing so, you diminish his personhood. So let me leave you with an illustration that I found incredibly helpful this week. This comes from a man named J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is Um, a brilliant Anglican theologian and pastor, and he was preparing to preach to his congregation one day about this idea of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works to glorify Jesus, and he was trying to think of a way to illustrate it to them, and I couldn't come up with anything better than him, so here's what he came up with. He said, the Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role is to fulfill what we may call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. I saw the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realized that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness, and so to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and of peace. Oh, that we would be a people so cognizant and aware of the Holy Spirit's illuminating work in our lives that we cannot help but better see Jesus Christ that the person and the work and the glory and the wonder and the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ would be thrown into stark relief in our lives. So let us not be a people who chase the Holy Spirit for what he can bring. But let us be a people who dependently live according to the Holy Spirit's guidance and light pointing us further into our relationship and walk with Jesus and allowing us to see him the way we were intended to see him. And that in that seeing, we would find transformation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that the reason we can have confidence in coming to you in prayer is because the Holy Spirit who indwells us enables our prayer. That in moments where we're not even sure what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf. Where in moments of doubt or in moments of questioning, the Holy Spirit stands as a testament and a witness to our hearts, reminding us of who we are in God. We thank you for that work, for the testimony that He gives in our souls of you. We thank you for the regeneration and the revelation and the adoption and the comfort that he brings. And Lord, though this is a text that is certainly not easy to understand, I pray that those who are here this morning who don't know you would simply walk away thinking about the fact that you are so good that you gave yourself to us in order that we might know you. Would we look to your word and would we look to your spirit for the revelation that only you can provide and keep us from the arrogance of trying to live a life outside of your grace. So we thank you for your goodness, your love and your mercy. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.